Hello. Welcome. <laughs> it's good to have you guys here. Welcome to the Lanky Guys podcast. This is the Word in the Hill. My name is Scott Powell. And my name is Scott Powell. No, it's not. It's Father Peter Musset. Father Peter Musset, that's right. I just am, you know, basically, Scott, as I was looking at your um, pictures of your family vacation, mm. I just I just put myself in your place. And then I and then I like took on the persona of Scott Powell. And then I just said to myself, you know what? I'm I'm a Colorado man. I'm kayaking. I'm paddleboarding. I'm riding my bicycle in the mountains. Mm. I'm hanging out. I'm in the mm. springs. I'm mm. living it, man. Yes, I did all those things. <laughs> you and, had and your it, own little, and it felt good. Yeah, it felt it should feel good. We had mm. a, a Colorado vacation, which we've never really done. We went to all the places we never really go, and because we don't have Camp Boyd with the summer, so we right. had a little more freedom we don't really travel at the moment so it was great it was a blast and you had a little family reunion time well right? yeah my sister came, my sister came and stayed with me and her husband and family so we had 10 here in the house and they mm. like do vacation that's a lot of folks in, in the, the right way yeah they just like hang out and eat food and in your house. wake up late in my house <laughs> <laughs> it was really fun and uh, and That's then awesome. I just did all sorts of off-roading nice. with my nieces and nephews and my sister. It was just, it was pretty awesome, dude. Summer. Uh, it's a weird year, but this has been a good, we had a good two weeks. Yeah. It's been a good run. Yeah, exactly. And and you get to save all the money that you don't spend um, on the other things. Yeah. You know? You know, like air, air, airplanes? Airplanes. <laughs> Is that what you were, yeah. like that? Yeah, I don't yeah. even know. Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's good. Yeah. Well, <sighs> friends, we're heading into the 16th Sunday in Ordinary Time. We are, we are, we we're are. We're about halfway through the ordinal times. Is that right? Speaking of uncomfortable, our first reading is coming from the book of Wisdom, <laughs> chapter 12, verse 13, jumping to 16 through 19. I There's actually something kind of appropriate about that. There was. There's, there's some uncomfortableness I'm in the it. wisdom of oh, the yeah. Solomons. No, I'm going to run with it. Do you know how embarrassed I was when I went to code try to find the Hebrew? Because I was like, what, yeah, what it, it doesn't exist. And I was like going mm. through all of my stuff and I was like, no. I was like, ah, I was like, and then I, then after like 10 minutes of trying no. to search, I was like, it doesn't exist. I'm not smart. Well, and, no, it's, yeah, it doesn't exist. Though. Our psalm has come from 86. <laughs> okay. <laughs> our psalm Fair. comes from Psalm 86. Yes. Uh, verses 5 to 6, 9 to 10, 15 to 16, with the responsicle coming from 5a. 5a it is. Our second reading is coming from the book of Romans. It's a short one. This, um, I have a lot, I, I've been thinking and reflecting a lot on this passage. This is a lot of where my mileage today oh, okay. is resting, at least in my heart. My heart mileage. Oh. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 through 27. Which, are were Romans short? Uh, not. I mean, in the archaeological I mean, record, do we I, have. I don't know. Do we have information? I mean, we're. The, I, I. I imagine the gladiators were tall. One would think. But now, Russell Crowe was pretty tall. How tall is Russell Crowe? <laughs> just base it on that. <laughs> I think he's short. I think Russell Crowe is actually short. Yeah. Well, I think that then Romans were short. <laughs> okay, our gospel is coming from Matthew chapter thirteen, twenty-four to forty-three. Unless you go for a short one, which is thirty-two, thirteen to twenty-four, thirty. But we always do the long form. Long form, baby. It's always better to have more scripture than less. That is that is a good adage. It is. So more scripture than and, less. Uh, the gospel exclamation is eleven twenty-five. Yeah. So yeah. which yeah. is that's good. Father of heaven and earth, hidden from the wise and learned and revealed to the childlike, which was our um, gospel yesterday or two days ago or whatever. Oh, which was nice. That's beautiful. So, so it kind of flows from last week into this week. It does. There is a continuity, usually not always, between the daily readings and the Sunday readings. So wisdom is Solomon. Okay. Talk to me about a little bit about wisdom, because like I, I had a couple of moments that like struck my my heart when I was looking at it. Um, okay, um, I can tell you that wisdom is what it, one of what are called the Deuterocanonical books, which uh, means it's not in Hebrew. Yeah, well, that's that that is one of the reasons that it is a Deuterocanonical book is that there's not a Hebrew version. So what that means is it's not in the Jewish or Protestant canons of the Bible. Um, so it's. Uh, this is a much longer story, but it was um, it originally part of the Christian canon mm-hmm. until it was later removed um, in subsequent years, partially from Martin Luther's, I think, misunderstanding of how the canon came together. But it, it has been part of the, the Christian canon. It would have been books that Jesus would have read. The, the, the Jewish canon as such that, that exists today did not come about 
until well after the time of Christ. And so there's good evidence that Jesus would have been reading these books and studying them and knowing this. So we're in, we're in good company. So it's, it's deuterocanonical. Uh, the authorship is attributed to Solomon. It's called the Wisdom of Solomon often. Um, no one really, uh, very few people think that Solomon was actually the primary author. The, the Muratorian Canon, you remember that? It's one of the earliest groupings together of the entire uh, Bible um, in the first centuries. It actually attributes it to Solomon's friends. Oh. Um, so people basically in the spirit of Solomon, in, in the... In the in the spirit of Solomon. Yeah, there's no, no better way to right, say right, that, yeah. right? So it's Salamic, Salomonic um, sort of proverbs. Peace. And what we need to know about it is that it, it falls into this genre that we call w- wisdom literature, which has a lot to do with the idea of, of the skill of finding the ways of God within the midst of darkness and finding what is true in the midst of falsehood. So it's kind of like night skiing. It's kind of because <laughs> yeah. you need your Solomons to go. Your Solomons. There it was. I, I was, was, I was, I was, I was a you're finding your way in the darkness. Your I mean, come on, this is, yeah, yeah, good. I, I was, it was a stretch. No, it's good. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for giving it's me a solid peace, okay. peace to my It's a soul. solid B minus. It's a solid B minus. Uh, um, but it's commonly believed that this was probably written uh, in in um, Alexandrian times when when the Septuagint was being put together. It's probably it, it's within a context of Israel within exile or Israel far away from home. Israel having been stripped of the temple and the things that they knew, maybe beginning to rebuild, but Israel basically having had her world taken away from her, Israel's world turned upside down, and in the midst of a world of confusion and darkness and what is true, what is false, where do we go, there's people worshiping idols, there's people telling us that these things are gods, we are this remnant that believes and knows that there is one true God, how do you find truth in the midst of all that? That's the theme, basically, of... All of the wisdom literature, but the book of wisdom in a particular way. And so it has a lot to do with um, evil being separated from light or or good from evil. The way of truth, the way of the just, the way of the righteous, and then the way of the wicked. The way of the just will ultimately lead to vindication. The way of the wicked will ultimately lead to destruction. Um, The reason that that's kind of problematic, and you can watch this sort of unfold over the course of salvation history. There's a, there's part of why the wisdom literature comes about as a genre is that there was a belief for a long time, and it's, it's almost a, like a childlike belief, you could say, that as the scriptures kind of begin and you can read through the Pentateuch and, you know, the historical books, the idea really that seems to shape the world of morality is that if you're good, you'll be vindicated and you'll be blessed. And if you're evil and bad, you'll be punished, right? And that's how the world is supposed to work. It's a very like childlike, I just was, you know, on this Colorado road trip with my family and my three children and spend any time with little children and the sense of justice is so, <laughs> the, the children's sense of just like, I, he shouldn't have that thing and he took that thing from me and I should, you know, the, the sense of justice is so like, this should person should be punished. They did this thing. Sam pinched me. This person did this thing. He took my book punish him like there should be immediate recompense well, for what happened well actually part of the problem is is that uh, the 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 delivery of justice is often swift and non-referred to anybody else he pinched me so i punched him oh yeah totally <laughs> that's totally true right and yeah and, that's and, totally true and so then and that's then totally what true. happens is that with, especially with kids it becomes disproportionate in yep. the in the ability to deliver justice absolutely and that becomes then the human experience and again you expand that throughout salvation history and you, you do get, it's almost childlike in, in Scripture's vision toward the beginning of Scripture of bad people do bad things and they get punished. Good people do good things and sometimes they struggle, but eventually they're vindicated in the end. Like it's the, it's the good um, story or tale or fairy tale, right? Eventually the good guys win, right? right? But as Scripture moves on and as human history moves on, we begin to realize that that's not always the case. And all of a sudden you look at the world and you begin to grow up and mature and you see wow, sometimes the wicked really just prosper and it seems like they will always win and it seems like the good and the righteous and the meek and the humble and the ones who are trying to do good will always get knocked down and punished and just constantly beat up. And so wisdom literature then in the midst of exile, in the midst of like the most explicit experience of 
wait a second, how come the bad guys aren't getting punished? Like, mom, dad, why aren't you doing anything about this? It's sort of a cry to God saying, why are you allowing these things to go on? Why aren't you punishing the wicked? Why aren't you vindicating the righteous? Why are you allowing the world to be topsy-turvy like this? Good doesn't seem to be good. Bad doesn't seem to be bad. People seem to be confused on right and wrong and good and evil. I mean, you translate this into the modern world, right? right? And so the wisdom literature really comes out of this and says, no, we have to believe and acknowledge that there's more that we can't see. And that part of the problem in this is the Jewish experience did not have a fully fleshed out version of the afterlife. So early on in scriptures, I mean, again, you, the idea is things get taken care of kind of here and now. There's not a sense of this eternal judgment or eternal blessedness or eternal reward. The afterlife is, is kind of fuzzy in Judaism for a long time. And so it raises this question of, well, what's going to happen? I mean, surely there's got to be justice at some point. Surely God's not going to let evil go on forever. And the wisdom literature is really trying to struggle through that. And it says, no, whether we can see it here on this earth or not, the way of the wicked is foolish. The way of the wicked is punishment. Ultimately, in some way, even in ways we don't really understand or see yet, and the way of truth is still right. Even if you feel like you will constantly be beat up, if the world will always hate you, it is still worthwhile to pursue truth because there will be vindication at some point, even though we do not quite see it. Christianity then comes in and adds another dimension of this, and Jesus begins to lift the veil a little bit further and shows, no, there's more than you can see, and, and it, it is still good to pursue righteousness, even when it seems like the righteous are always beat up. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's my fervor, you know, on the wisdom literature, which is really what this is central part of wisdom is getting at. Well, yeah, and what I really like specifically about this reading from wisdom uh, um, is that it says, your might is the source of your righteousness. That that it's talking about God's might, God's might, not right. yours yeah, or mine. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but that, but that God is in a certain sense and in the literature modeling for us mm -hmm. something yeah. that out of virtue comes a righteousness. Your mastery over all things makes you lenient towards all. So what happens is that is the weaker we are, the l more the less merciful we are. Oh, good. That's a good line. Right. Because like, the, the, like w when yes. we actually haven't taken time to develop specific virtues, mm. what happens is we become harsher and meaner. When do people become bullies? When they feel disempowered. Right. When they feel weakened in some way. That's when we lash out, right? Right. God is big enough to right. allow mercy. Right. Which, and then so, he, so then we go into yeah. ego. It says, um, you show your might when the perfection of your power is disbelieved. You show your might when the perfection of your power is disbelieved. And then it says, and in mm. those who know you, you rebuke insolence. But how did it just speak about God's power? Mercy. Mercy. Being big enough for mercy. Right. And so he, what does it say? He shows his mercy, which is his might, when his power is disbelieved. Which again, what this is doing is, is subtly, new in a nuanced way, answering this question, why do you allow evil to go on? Because I'm merciful, because I'm big enough to wait it out, and I have enough love for humanity to give them ample opportunities, even though they be evil or do mm. evil things, to come back because my patience is big enough and my mercy is big enough. I'm not in a hurry. Little children, my kids in the back of the van on the trip, were like, it has to happen now. I need justice now. I need you to punish him or her because of what they did right this second. Right. Because there is this sense that if it doesn't happen, I feel so disempowered, I either have to lash out or I have to demand that you do something. Right. right. And God is saying, no, I need you to have the patience to live in my life, to see the largeness of my mercy because I'm powerful because I'm mighty, because I got it. Again, we lash out, we get freaked out when we feel out of control. God says, I am in complete control. I am complete control. And if you are in me, then you can take a breath. You don't have to freak out, which I think is advice that we all, our whole world needs right now. Yeah, right, which is interesting because it actually, if we fast forward just for a second to Matthew, the yeah. gospel acclamation, it says, you have you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and you've mm -hmm. revealed them to the childlike. Yes. The childlike is the yeah. one who yeah. rests in the might of their parents. Mm. The childlike is the one who looks and says, my daddy can beat up your daddy. <laughs> right? 
He does. Because acknowledging the the truth of the weakness that Mm. exists inside of them, they actually know where the residence of strength is. Yeah, right. Um, And that's, so it says that, and then those who are righteous must be kind. If you want to actually participate, then kindness actually is a great indicator in soul. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about kindness today, and I actually wanted to ask you what you think the definition of kindness is, because I think this is something mm. that our culture sort of misunderstands. Not not like that. I even looked it up, but like what is kindness? Because sometimes I think, particularly in in certain very very faithful Orthodox Catholic circles, kindness can almost be something that it's we like scoff a, at. Right. It's not a virtue. It's like niceness. Like oh, you're just nice, but kindness is i mean it is upheld in a very powerful way in scripture um what does he say there was well because if if i were if i were pressed to give a definition of kindness i would say it would be a a merciful engagement with another out of a right and true spirit so like almost like like if I'm kind to somebody, I'm not condescending, meaning I, I'm not thinking that, that, I, that right. I, I think that they are worthy to act towards. Yeah. But when you're kind, it just means that you are actually reverent towards the other person and the, the acknowledgement of who they actually are without actually trying to make them um, into something. Because unkindness is, is a domination, a control temerity which i had to look up as well did you see that it, it's in it's uh, uh for you show your might when the perfection of your power is disbelieved and in those who know you you rebuke temerity and i had to look it up um temerity is overconfidence over being overly bold or arrogance. overly confident which is really arrogance yeah with thrasos is the greek because I, I went and isn't a, and that a, a great word i was like trying because i was actually looking at that exact same one trying to grapple with it yes, right and i think it's the antithesis of kindness right exactly Temer- i think those are the two um temerity counterpoints Thrasos, insolence, uh, arrogance. Is, this, yeah. is, this is where I struggle. I don't struggle, but it's it's hard. The idea of virtue. Virtues always exist in the midpoint between two different vices, right? right. So we have the we, we talk about the, the virtue of hope in the second reading today. Hope exists in between the the vices, I suppose, or the errors, I suppose, of either um, disbelief in God's goodness, that I'm so bad, the world is so terrible, we're all hosed. Like, we're all totally messed. We're, we're beyond hope. We're, we're just too, we're too far gone. That's one vice. The other vice is overconfidence. This is, well, God's God. God's good. God's loving. Everything's going to be fine. I don't have to worry about it, right? Those are both the, the corresponding vices, either saying I'm too bad to be saved or God is so great and I'm fine, so of course he's going to save me and everything's totally cool. Those are both um, a kind of temerity in a certain sense, right? An right. Overconfidence. Like, I'm fine. I can do whatever I want to because God is God and I believe this, whatever. Or I'm Catholic or I'm this. So look at Israel, right? We are Israel. We have God in the temple. We can do whatever we want to. That They right. had temerity in a sense that I see a lot among, you know, Christians and Catholics mm-hmm. oftentimes. Or, or whatever, you know, pick your... It exists everywhere. It's not. Right. A, it's not just. But this is. I'm speaking to myself. But hope exists in the middle of. No, I don't deserve this, and no, I'm not going to be overconfident in it. So I'm going to hope, and I hope in a God who is this, and I trust him. Who does not abandon his people? He won't abandon me, even though I feel abandoned, and even though I don't want to be abandoned, I kind of want to lash out. But I'm also afraid of being abandoned. I will sit in the midpoint, which is hope. And I trust that my father is bigger than that. And you gave your children reason to hope that you would allow them to repent for their sins. Which is that bigness he was talking about, right? Right. He's big enough to do that. Right, which is is allowing space for transformation. Allowing space for transformation. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Right. Like, yes. like, why do we watch TV shows all the time? Yeah. Because every single, the point of absolutely every single TV show and movie that you will ever watch is transformation. Yeah, of Period. course. Absolutely. That's it. Yeah. We're just interested. And the ones that catch us are about the transformation. Some transformations are for the worse. It's right. the anti-hero stuff. Yeah. And then you have the, then some transformations are actually for the better. I'm going to give an analogy. And uh, we, we were on this long driving trip around Colorado and we were listening to audiobooks, And uh, we really dig Beverly Cleary. Oh, she wrote man, like, the Ramona dude, books and stuff. You just brought me in the Wayback Machine, man. Wow. 
So Beverly Cleary has this um, not very well-known book called Mitch and Amy okay. that I'd never heard of before. But we just I was like, oh, Beverly Cleary, Audible. I just I, I grabbed it. And so we were listening to Mitch and Amy on part of the drive. And it's about these these twin brother and sister, and they're, they fight with each other, and there's a bully in their life, and they kind of have to stick up for each other. Um, but one of the kids, and it's not worded in an explicit way, but one of the kids seems to have something of a learning disability, one of the siblings. And he just struggles with reading, and it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing for him. And there's this bully throughout the course of the whole book that is just constantly attacking him. And he's the son of, like, a really famous scientist, and he's just horrible to them. And he does, like, the worst things. Like, he destroys the cupcakes, and he spits them into the sister's hair. And he's terrible. And, and at the end of the book... There's this climactic moment where he's like doing this terrible thing and someone finally kind of stands up to him and he's like threatening them. And it's the standoff moment. Right. And he he mispronounces some word as he's he's like, I'm going to I'm going to do something to you. I'm going to I don't even remember what it was, but he like spells a word wrong and the whole school is gathered around. And they all start laughing at him because he couldn't spell this word right. And the brother and the sister who had been being kind of picked on the whole time. Yeah. They both like kind of make eye contact with each other and they realize the sister is like. Oh shoot, my brother struggles with something like that too. I wonder if he has the same kind of thing that my brother struggles with. And he's the son of this famous scientist who's like super brilliant and she begins to see like, "Oh, there's more to this kid's story." And she responds with mercy to him. Mm-hmm. And she is this moment the whole school's watching, she could totally destroy him, like emotionally and physically and like she has got all the power. And she chooses to realize, like, oh, this is bigger than I thought. And I can see my brother in a situation like this. And I can see why you struggle with this. And she responds in this really beautiful, merciful way toward him because she doesn't all of a sudden have the impatience of, like, now's my moment. I have to attack because I can. She has the power. She has the might to see with kindness that, oh, this is more complicated. So I will be merciful. Which, and it's it's a really beautiful ending to a book, and it just reminds me of this in a certain sense. When we have the the bigness of vision and reverence, I guess, toward the other to realize we can actually be merciful if we're not so impatient and desperate for justice. Right? Does that make any sense? 100%. So. Lord, you are good and forgiving, most merciful to all who call on you. This is a response in the psalm. Which is a perfect segue if you read a little bit more in the psalm. So Psalm 86 actually begins, I wish we had the first couple of verses, because it begins by saying, O Lord, hear, O Lord, and answer me. Shema, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Mm. It begins, before it gets on to talking about who God is in verse 5, it talks about who the writer is in verse 1. And it's somebody who's small and poor and needy. And so he asks for God to guard his life. He's devoted. Save me. Save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, Lord, because I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant. Lift up my soul. And then it goes on to describe the attributes of God. It's believed, nobody's sure, it's believed that this is written by by David. It's a psalm that's attributed to David. Um, Solomon's dad. Solomon's uh, dad. Yep. That's the one I think about that for a second. Solomon's dad. Um, and it's, it's, it's known to be a Psalm that is a prayer for God's help when being attacked by our enemies. And so it's believed traditionally that this was either written by David or in the spirit of David, um, during the time that he was on the run from, from Saul, who was trying to kill him or at times when people in his own kingdom did not respect his authority or want to listen to him as King. It's a time where he feels totally poor and needy. Everybody's out to get him and he's under the attack. It's believed that, uh, the traditional way of referring to oneself, if you were a King in the old Testament was to call yourself God's servant, which is why a lot of people think that this is, if not by David, one of the Israelite Kings mm. who's under attack, who is being cast out, who is being embarrassed or shamed or oppressed in some way. And he's saying an acknowledgement, I am poor and I am needy. And because I've recognized that I'm poor and needy, I can recognize the goodness and the bigness and the forgivingness and the mercy of God whom I can come and rest in. So we can't really take confidence in the bigness of God's mercy until we recognize the smallness and the humility of ourselves, yep. is I think what this psalm is saying, which I think fits perfectly into the, the scheme of what the first reading is doing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But I thought yeah. the context was kind of cool. Yeah, I think it's that. really cool. I, I mean, it's just, it goes so, it, go, it, it, um, 
dovetails it puzzle pieces so well with the first reading about yeah, graciousness yeah. and strength and right. and salvation and deeds and bowing before the Lord of like the recognition that of, of the strength of God like it calls up like calling upon the mercifulness and the strength of God is actually in this simultaneous thing because yeah. I mean, if you don't encounter your own weakness in your life, then you're not. Then, then what happens is that we're dealing with that arrogance, that that um, that that thought temerity, temerity that we were struggling with in the first reading. Yes. And so, so in a certain sense, it's this antidote uh, right here is to say, like, okay, I'm going to acknowledge where I'm weak, and I'm going to let you be God. I'm going to be childlike. I'm going to enter into that relationship, even at the highest levels of being a king. Because if we have no recognition of our own weakness, we don't need God's bigness. Right. If I have everything that I need, if I am in total control, it's funny. We have lived in a year where control, for for better or for worse, in good ways and bad ways, whether real or parts of it being manipulated, all, all sorts of things, we've lived in a year where control is being taken from us. And I think you see people responding in all sorts of crazy ways and a lot of lashing out because when we feel like control is taken from us, we go crazy and we freak out and we lash out. And you see a lot of bullies online and bullies out in public. And I mean, the bullies in a lot of us are coming out because we feel very disempowered right now. And again, you go to the greatness of a king who feels totally disempowered. And what does he do? He turns to the bigness of God, the greatness of God, the smallness of himself. Because again, I'm just looking out at a society and I'm seeing it in myself that is just freaked out over so many things. We just want to start swinging. We want to start swinging our fists because if we can hit something or someone, then maybe we can regain a semblance of control, right? Which is the opposite of what the psalmist is saying, in a certain sense. Yeah, it's it's interesting as you're as you're talking about. And there like, is righteous like, anger that right, exists too. As you're talking about how like control, it's actually like I don't feel like I have to control my life, but it, but what worries me is when I see other people deciding that they're going to control. Right. It's that's actually more worrisome because like I, like I can kind of go along for a while with other people's stuff but when people say I'm going to demand the control now. Yeah. Now I'm going to control this situation. That's the part that it, it gets me frustrated. And now maybe it is because secretly I actually want to be in control through, but, but then, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, well, it's that's just where it gets complicated. It just gets complicated. What is true? I, what is not true? Right. And, and, and then because narratives are huge. Yeah. So the control of a narrative is, is actually difficult. Absolutely. That's the most difficult thing for me when it comes down to it is, is, is the ideas of the things. Which is what the wisdom of, what, what the first reading, the, the book of wisdom is seeking to do. It's trying to, everything we talked about, seeking out how do you discover truth from falsity, wickedness from righteousness. It does it in two ways. It says the only ways we can really discover this in the world that they were living in, and I think that's true today too, is through creation and through salvation history, history and creation. That's how God teaches. If you lose creation, if you lose the, the sight of the world that is actually around us and the ways that God speaks to us through it, and if you lose the story and the narrative thread, which every time Israel is put in exile, whether it be in Egypt or Babylon or with the Romans, whatever it is, the challenge is always how do you hang on to the narrative of who we are? Right. Because when you're taken over by someone else, the challenge is that they can't take away your story, your narrative, where you've come from, who you are, who your people are. And so what wisdom challenges us to do is to see God in creation. If that's all you got left, then find him there. And don't lose the story because history is the other way. It's the training ground through which God teaches us who we are and who we ought to be and who we ought not to be. So just it, that seems apropos to what you were saying. I just find it interesting that that um, kind of all the vacationing that I'm doing and that you're doing is actually a retreat to nature. It, it is. And I, I mean, we're in a time that, you know, a lot of us don't feel super comfortable traveling, you know, getting on airplanes and stuff. We happen to live in the most beautiful place on earth, I think. And so it's there's this huge gift of like, well, we live in the place where other people come to vacation. Let's vacation. Just go. Yeah, let's, let's, let's go. Let's actually return to this this grandeur of yeah. the creative created world. Yeah, which has been profoundly a gift. 
Right. And I find my peace restored. I mean, I, I have more peace. I'm sure you do too when yeah. you're out cheaping or when you're yeah. in the hiking to a waterfall or something. Right. So that's not to be. Or jeeping um, into a waterfall. Or jeeping into a waterfall. All right. So Romans. Um, that's because we've been roaming around the state. Oh, oh I was trying to come up with good. a link. Yeah. No, it's good. Um, well, it, <laughs> you guys, if if I could have shown you the the eye roll that Scott it did, it wasn't an eye roll. It was a it full. Was it was a full roll. eye and head roll, bro. It was a it was an eyebrow raise, and a turn of a head, and a turn of the eyes. It wasn't a roll. <laughs> there's, a, there's a fine line, but but it's not pun. It's not punny. But um, this is actually coming very hot on the heels of Paul's statement about creation itself is groaning out in travail. Waiting for the revelation of the sons of the sons of God. Oh, so the groaning of the spirit and the groaning of the world are connected. Yes, there are in this section of of Romans chapter eight. In this end section, there are three sets of groanings that are all directly tied together. <laughs> nice. Well, done. got it out. Is it out now? Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to come it's up good. with like I don't know how to do the Holy Spirit groan. That's the point. You're not supposed to. <laughs> You're not supposed to. I mean, so what if there's you know a prophetic the three gift? Are? No, you got the creation, the Spirit, and and then there's the one that um, goes unseen oftentimes. Oh, but it's the reason. It's the one smack in the middle. So it begins by saying creation is groaning out in travail, basically waiting for those of us who have been redeemed by Jesus, who have entered back into the narrative, who have been called to try to see the world for what it is, truth for truth, falsehood for falsehood, wickedness for wickedness, <laughs> but to see the world in its reality because of Jesus. We are being told now that all of creation is groaning out in travail, waiting for us to get our acts together, to live as though that really did happen that Jesus did redeem us. At the other end, here, we have the Holy Spirit groaning in in inexpressible groanings for us. And smack in the middle, it's we who are groaning. And it's sort of implied here. So what Paul says is, brothers and sisters, the Spirit comes to the aid of our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. We are groaning in travail in a certain sense because we don't know how to do this. So Paul just finished telling us, Jesus is the new Adam. He's come to reverse all of human history. Everything that was had gone wrong, Jesus has come to undo it, to give us access again into the grace in which we stand, that we can be the heroes of the story again, that we can regain our rightful place as sons and daughters of the king, that we can be the psalmist who says, we are small, but because of God, we can do the great things of God that are holy. Even creation itself is groaning out, waiting for us to do this. But we basically say, we don't know how to do that. I have no idea how to look out at a world of darkness and confusion and chaos and be like, no, I'm in charge. We're cool. Jesus is in charge and he's given me the grace to be his steward on earth. I'm going to go and do that. I'm going to go live that out. Paul is saying the natural response is you shouldn't really know what to do with that. You, you, we just don't. How do you look at a world of darkness and say, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to live in this. I don't know how to make sense out of a bunch of confusing voices that are saying contradictory things and a world full of idols and darkness and chaos and confusion. I'm not sure what to do about that, Paul, is the response. And he says, so the spirit himself will do what? Intercede for you with inexpressible groanings. Now, there's a funny thing, and this is what I want to. I want to read from uh, our buddy N.T. Wright. He's not my buddy. I wish he was. Um, the good Bishop Wright. We um, could have him on the podcast. I wish. We could have Baron and N.T. That would be fun. Wouldn't the Battle fun? of the Bishops, dude. And then us too, trying to like. <laughs> hey everybody! Did you watch Goonies hey, ever? Because there was a funny movie. They did the trumpet shuffle. That's the worst. Um, but there's so this this spirit interceding with inexpressible groanings. There have been some who have argued that this is a reference to speaking in tongues, which Paul talks about in Corinthians, which he obviously uh, says that there is a gift of the spirit, which speaking in tongues. But 
linguistically, I have this whole thing about the linguistics of this. That I don't, I don't think it, it, it's not talking about any kind of speaking because it literally says it's not speakable. Right. How does the spirit groan in things that are not speakable? So it's, he gives this, N.T. Wright gives this analogy. He, he says he's not speaking about um, inexpressible groanings in the sense of like speaking in tongues in ways that people don't understand necessarily. He's also not speaking about inexpressible groanings in the sense of just silent, quiet prayer to oneself you know, um, silent uh, prayer in a chapel by yourself or in your room or something. It's neither of those things. And I'm going to quote N.T. Wright. He says, rather, he's speaking of an agonizing in prayer, a mixture of lament and longing in which, like a great swell of tide at sea, too full for sound or foam, the weight of what is taking place has nothing to do with the waves or ripples on the surface. It's not, these inexpressible groanings are not just oh, the Spirit is going to kind of just randomly speak through me in these ways. It's saying, you should look at your world. Well, let me read one more thing. It says, the point Paul is making is that the Spirit's own self intercedes within the Christian precisely at the point where he or she, faced with the ruin and misery of this world, finds that there are no words left to express in God's presence the sense of futility and the longing for redemption. What Paul is saying is that the spirit active within the innermost being of the Christian is doing the very interceding that the Christian longs to do, even though the only evidence that can be produced is inarticulate groanings. It's the moment where you look out in the world and you're like, I don't have any words of prayer left. I can recite some Hail Marys, like I can go through the motions again, but I am out of words. And Paul's like, that's where the spirit kicks in. That's where he shows up. Man. That's like describing a little bit of what's going on in my own heart. Mm. I gotta, te- I gotta be honest, man. I'm, I, I, I uh, what was my? Uh, I'm a, I had a T-shirt, a quote that you <laughs> wanted to put on my holy card earlier. Oh, I can't remember. I, Lord, I said I would write it down. Lord, I, I hope you're coming soon, um, because I, I got, I got nothing to do. I can't do anything. Like I don't know what to do about all this stuff. That's what he's talking about. Can I say one more Greek word? Yeah. Um, sinon tilam banete, baneatai, silam balam aneatai. It's the word that I think this is significant. I thought this was really cool. Maybe you won't. I don't know. When it says, um, brothers and sisters, the spirit comes to the aid of our weakness, that coming to the aid is that really big Greek word I just used. And the other time that it's used in the New Testament, it's the same word that Martha uses when she wants Mary to come and help her in the kitchen. Remember the Martha and Mary story? Yeah, here we go. Hold on. (laughs) rolls off the tongue (laughs) so it's the same word that martha wants to have when she wants mary to come help her in the kitchen she's like i i I need help i'm so think about it i mean put it in context a little bit martha is struggling she's like my hands are too full i can't do this all on my own i'm struggling i'm trying to produce this thing mary you have to come and help me Mm. and i'm thinking of that story and the frustration that she speaks that into a, a legitimate good right that she's trying to do and I, that was so profound to me when that's what, that's how I respond with God and with the spirit. When I'm looking at the world, I'm like, it's too much. I need somebody to help me out. My hands are too full here. I cannot do this. Do you know what the, yeah. like, that's when the spirit kicks in. Do you know when it's used in the old Testament? Uh-uh. When Moses has uh, his father-in-law, Midian, oh. the, 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 says, I need you to get elders to help you bear the burden. To bear the burden to bear yes. the burden with you and then the, the spirit will be given to them to assist you and to bear the burden of having all the judgments. Isn't that great? That's powerful. It's really powerful because again, it, it I've never really known what to do with that line about the spirit groaning with an honorable, like, that's cool. But if you follow Paul's train of thought, he's like, if we are to believe what I am suggesting to you about the state of the world, despite what every one of your senses tell you about the world, then you're going to need some help. Because it'd be a pious, you know, futile thing to just be like, oh, I mean, how many times do we say these things? We, I wore a t-shirt today of the Holy Spirit. I looked at my drawer and I was like, I need the Holy Spirit today. But, but that's, that's it. I mean, because we say these things like Jesus has conquered death. He's defeated evil. He has trampled down death by death. He's forgiven all of our sins, but I still sin. I'm still afraid of death and I still feel evil everywhere. So we, we, I think many Christians kind of act schizophrenic almost. We say these nice platitudes and things during mass and in our prayers, 
But do we actually believe those? And Paul's like, I want you to put your money where your mouth is. Because if you actually did put your money where your mouth is, which is to humble yourself and to recognize I need the spirit to kick in and sort of help do this on my behalf because I'm out of words. He's basically saying if we did that, all of creation would begin to be transformed because we would allow the Holy Spirit to actually allow us to be the heroes of God's story again which is what every human being wants. We want to be heroes in our narrative. Jesus is the hero, and mm. we're the companions that he's called us to do. We're, we're all, uh, who is it, Sam, Samwise with our, with our Frodo. Jesus has done, the, I don't know if the analogy is right. That probably breaks down. But he, he calls, we're not meant to just be this, this, the audience. We're meant to actually be warriors. We're meant to be companions, to do these things with God, who is the hero, to actually be a part of the narrative. But we cannot do it if we do not humble ourselves and take all of our temerity away and give it over to God and say, I don't have any more words, so I need you to kick in and do it for me. Right. Which I, I don't know. That was very powerful. It's what? a very short reading. It's two verses. Then what's the third one? one? With What's the third groaning? The spirit. The spirit groans. Oh, so creation's groaning for us. We, we groan, groan, and then and the, the spirit, spirit groans. groans. Yeah. But the spirit's groaning. That's the only one that's efficacious. Mm. That kicks, actually does what it, it's, it's, it's got the dunamis. Yes. Creation is groaning for something to happen. Right. We are groaning because we can't do it. Right. So then the spirit's groaning comes and is the animating force behind it. Mm. Man, yeah, I, I, think, I think my quote was something like this, like, G, I, I, I'm pretty sure Jesus is coming soon because I got nothing. Because I'm sick of all this stuff. <laughs> something. It was something. Like that. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Because. Because I mean. Because I got nothing, man. Yeah. I, like seriously, if you look around in the world right now, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the profound defeat of my resources. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I, I've and and yet I know that the Lord will give me what my next step is to be. And like, I have, I have courage in that on occasion. Yeah. I, more than an occasion. I gotta be honest. It's, it's just hard because it's that schizophrenic that you're talking about that on one level, you're like, okay, you know, I go to mass and all of a sudden the spirit is there and it's right. palpable in the believing community. Right. And then you go home and you're like the, the defeat and right. the struggle and the, right. the beatings are, yes. are severe enough that you, that you go the beatings in the narrative of the world that is, that is that was seemed so sure and strong in its ideals and now all of a sudden is challenged by such weakness and then you go like and you begin to question everything that you believed you're like well i said all those things is that true or not like i, I felt true at the moment but now we question again this is what the wisdom literature is all about it's saying no we knew these things to be true and now we live in a society that's forcing us to question these things let's return to what we know Let's go back to the story. Let's go back to the created world that he's given us so we can ground ourselves back in what we know is true despite all of the voices that are saying contrary things. Well, and that's actually where, th that's, the, that's the radical nature of the narrative that's being presented is that everything that you thought you knew was true yeah. is a radical lie. So we're going to tear it all down yeah. and we're going to destroy it and you can rely upon nothing. Mm. No constitutional evidence, no historical demonstration, no morality or even science actually applies. And that's, what, that's what's so hard is that, I, I, that, that normally, it, it, I, that's exactly what I would encourage people to do is I'm saying like, okay, go back to you know what's what is real right. but it's been so crazy and redefined and i'm watching it happen over and over and over again that we, we, that we're losing that, that that there's a proposal right now mm. and so uh, of 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 a total loss of what was before mm. that we are going to rewrite everything and so but that's actually why we re return to scripture that's why we we together return and say like okay what was the inheritance? What, is the, have we seen this before? Are we looking at this? And there's there and and the the rhymes with history are real. They are. I'm hesitating with saying this, but but the other thing that well, we have to kind of always ground ourselves in, and what for the first reading, what wisdom is saying is that we don't need to return to Greek to Greco-Roman history. No, you need to return to Israelite history. Right. And so our grounding, our, our source for our compass needs to not be simply American history. Right. It needs to be the Christian story. Yes. And sometimes we get so short-sighted. We're like, this immediate thing, we're questioning, and this is confusing. We need to see the correct story. And 
the powers of the world and societies and cultures and histories and politi politicians and everything else, they will always try to rearrange the story. They will always um, rewrite history. They will always retell the stories. The victors always write the histories. The Christian story is the only narrative thread that actually will root us in reality. Because the Peloponnesians rewrote their story. The Greeks rewrote the stories. The Romans hired propaganda historians to rewrite their stories. The Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, they all did the same. It's only the Israelite Old Testament and then into the New Testament that speaks about defeated kings and kings who were humbled by their enemies and actually were by defeated and knocked down and by their own sin. And then received no mercy one, for repentance. No other society did that. No other histories went through that, which is one of the historical, I think, pieces of evidence that roots that story in being the truth. I mean, so what you're saying is that cancel culture has always actually been the, the, the way. Always. This is... Always. Always. And that, that, that we had a brief moment to where we thought that the Christian ideal would be espoused in a political, uh, political way. And in fact, it just shows how radical the Christian movement really, really is. Kind of. Yeah. From the thread of all of history. Yes. Yeah. But, it's, but that's comforting to me. Which when it feels like the political world around us is crumbling. Okay, so, so this is, is an absolute perfect okay. segue into these parables. All right, let's go. Because what do we have? We, you know, it says uh, good seed in the field. This is Matthew 13. Matthew 13. So you have good seed in the field that then it has some bad seed intermixed with it. Yeah. You've got the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that's tiny. Which, by the way, the bad seed, it, it's, this is a, um, oh, what is it Caraway? No, it's not caraway. There, there, this was a thing in the Roman, right. this was actually, a, there was a law in the Roman Empire that you couldn't go and uh, poison people's crops with this particular darnell 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 i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing darnell. it right that uh, it was a thing that you would and and you couldn't get it out so you'd actually literally have to wait until the crops all grew before you could actually separate the weeds from the wheat because it was so powerful and you couldn't you would destroy all the good stuff if you tried to get the bad stuff out right so which but which means this good and evil kind of growing together it's not just naturally happening they're is an evil one who is actively doing it. And Jesus' He's, explanation is that it's a satanic expression. Yes. So, but but this is the thing is that we have two others. Yes, yes, yes. That, um, so on one level, we have uh, uh, the outward kind of fruitful exposed version of of the kingdom of heaven. The Basilea Tuthe. Yes. The kingdom of yep. heaven is good seed and it's going to grow up and it's going to be seen and that the evil one's going to actually intermix with this. And the kingdom of heaven will actually be intermingled good seed and bad seed. Right. In the, it's not, and this is the part of the false dichotomies I think in Christianity is we want to be like, well, only the good people are real, the real Christians. No, Christianity, the Catholic church is rife with good and bad. Inside of us, there is good and evil. There right. is weeds and wheat. We can't just be like, well, the good folks, they're the real Christians. Those right. are the true ones. It's That's not what Jesus says. No, man, like, the kingdom's a mess. There is deep church going on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Indeed. Like, but like, what is Jesus' response, though? It's the same as the first reading. I can be patient. I can wait this out. I don't have to lash out because some enemy has put poison in my church. I can be patient. Because I know how big God is, because, so I can have mercy. Because the kingdom of heaven, like a mustard seed, it's yep. tiny. What's a tiny seed? It's it's little. It's and and when it's when it sprouts, <laughs> you you don't see it. I mean, yeah. I I did right. some I did some sowing in my like kind of like garden out here, which totally was all right. I ate one strawberry from it. It was quite delicious and sweet. But. But a tiny seed, when you plant it, you ca you can't even find it after it goes into the soil. It's no, gone. It's gone. Yeah. And right. And and yet, so so the kingdom of and heaven. You can't is, find it until until all of a sudden you're in in Dan, um, which is really interesting. the The book of Dan, um, Dan Daniel Daniel, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> 
Why was I saying Dan? Oh, it's the, the tribe of Dan. Yeah. So Daniel, yeah, D- Daniel 420. And so it says the tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to the heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were fair and the fruit abundant in which food was for all under which beasts of the field mm. found shade and whose branches the birds of the air dwelt. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Mm. So what happens is that we're seeing that yeah. everybody gets gathered yeah. and that, yeah. but, but then do you have the third one, which is the leaven, which is this hidden thing that goes into the loaf and transforms the whole thing. Yep. So you have this super visible and these two invisible parts that in some sense, what, what's happening is that you, you, you do see that the church and you do see the weeds and the weed and you see that there are good and there's bad and you take them both and you have the facts of life. <laughs> there and it like, is. And like, and then, but then also the, at the same time, there's these hidden seeds that are going to plant, be planted that are going to be so profound. I think of John, St. John Paul II, the great, yeah. who was this tiny guy who went and literally was in secret seminary under these regimes that yeah. were trying to kill everybody. And he was in quarries and in yeah. fan foundries and like and watched and his whole family die, watched his whole family die. And it was just yeah. totally shanked. And this tiny seed that was hidden literally yeah. becomes literally the place in which the entire church and the birds yeah. of the air dwell in the highest thought that yeah. she's given. And those who are, are weak and afraid can mm. dwell underneath the shade. And that the, the, there was bad stuff that grew up under John Paul II. He didn't, Absolutely. you know, and there was amazing things that grew up under him. Absolutely. And, but, Absolutely right. and he trusted, put his trust in the Lord. And then from that, there's this leaven that then goes and transforms the whole mm. church. Like, like uh, St. Faustina, who he then yeah. promoted or, or like these, these movements and these devotions and, and these, these transformative things. It's like we, we can see it play out age to age to age to age to age. And it, that, yes. it's not stopped now. No. Right now, there are seeds that are tiny that are planted that you will not be able to see that will actually be so transformative unless right. Jesus comes in the next couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, that story reminds us that, okay, no, it's always, it's never been the same. History doesn't repeat itself. History rhymes. Right. right? Salvation history rhymes. Right. And then we can look back and be like, oh yeah, those were dark. Those are, this is, this is dark. Things are hard, but yeah, that was dark. And look at what came and look at how many saints came out of that era of Poland. Yeah. Maximilian Kolbe, Edith Stein, um, St. Sister Faustina, John Paul II. I mean, you have all of this. This is when God really gets to work and he's like, oh, okay, now, and look now at, we can go. Right. And, and it, the mercy and the strength and the virtue of, of, all of them is yeah. seriously so profound. When forced with a world in which things were out of their control and they had to put their faith in God and God alone. Right. Because sometimes evil gets so big that the only place we can possibly turn is a God who's bigger than that. Yes. Who asks us to be patient. <laughs> I got it. Let it grow. Let the rain come. Let the sun come. Let the shade come. It'll grow. Jesus, I trust in you. You take care of everything. When you have no other option and you go in the groanings of creation and of your heart and turn and say, I've got nothing to the spirit who then groans. For then, us. Then, then, it, then. Who comes to our aid to right. lift our burden. Right. Like Mary didn't do to Martha. <laughs> but like the elders did with Moses. Or, or just, or, or just in the middle of all of that, we just say, Lord, I, I don't know. And he says, I know that you don't know, and I got this. And the fact that you know that you don't know means we can go. We can start. And then you can sing the song, All is that I don't know. All I know is that I don't know nothing. I will sing it. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, thanks for the spending the time and digging in. Um, indeed. With uh, with our souls and hearts and the word of God. And, yes, indeed. Uh, all mixed and mingled together. You are very special to us. And um, so keep praying. Keep on rocking if you can't do it in nearly the free world. Indeed. (laughs) All right, we'll be back next time. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org/aict, and you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.